We've been in Micah for six weeks, uh, looking together at what the prophet has had to say. We spent two weeks um, on these early chapters asking the question, what has grieved God? What grieves him? And we identified the two things that Micah does, um, that idolatry grieves him. And we recognize that actually idolatry is never far from many of us. It's not that you have a, a totem pole uh, that you bow down before, but actually anything that gets in the way of God. And we looked at complacency where the security that God offers become a, becomes complacency. We just ride, you just kind of, we stop growing. We just carry on drifting on. We asked, well, what would God do? What was the promise of God to the people? And he promised a better future and he promised a better leader. And then finally, what does he ask of us? And last week we looked at the passage about walking humbly with God and we looked a little bit about what humility looks like. And today I want to talk about praying hopefully. For Micah, it was as bad as it could be. Everywhere he looked, he saw injustice and he saw people who claimed to be the people of God acting no differently than the rest of the nations. The foreign powers were about to attack. The country was about to be invaded. It was a bleak, bleak time. And the big question, and in a sense the big question all the way through the Old Testament is this. God has promised something, but will circumstances overturn his promise? In other words, can God be trusted to keep his own promise? The big promise was that you'll be given a land and you will be a people and God will use you for the sake of the world and now the enemy are just about to invade you. And the big question is this. The big question is this. Does that mean God's finished with you? Everywhere Micah looked, he saw corruption, verse 3, injustice, he saw mistrust, verse 5 and 6, don't trust your neighbor, don't put a confidence in a friend, you can't trust the woman you're sleeping with, you can't trust your mother, you can't trust your mother-in-law, be careful what you say. And he saw isolation as a result. What do you do when it feels as bad as it can and you're wondering whether God's actually going to come through for you? I don't know what your week's been like, um, this has not been a bad week at all. But when you get to a situation where you feel it's as bad as you get, what is your first reaction? Is it to complain simply, or does it turn you to crying out to God? This week, um, we... Uh, was it this week? What, what, where are we in the month? Did we have a book group this week? Last week. Last week, we had a book group in the Vine. And um, was it last week? I have no idea where we are. Is it Christmas yet? Um, and uh, there was a whole stack of kids outside um, yelling at us about being Bible bashers. I wanted to give them a chance to find out. Um, but they were, they were crowding around the front of the vine. It was just like being at Liverpool Street, for those of you who remember. Um, it was crowding around, because they, they were shouting up at the, uh, the flat above, because I think they do some trading. And um, the kids were around, and they were shouting up at the window. And then on uh, Thursday, I uh, got a call to say that the, the van had been flooded um, and, and Anne, uh, Sammy had gone to uh, work and uh, had, had to put a wellies on because the upstairs flat had flooded through the ceiling. <laughs> and then, as I was walking there, 
Just as I was literally walking in, I saw these. On the grass outside. Can you see what they are? <laughs> and I, for those of you not sure, it's, it, they may be yours. Um, it's a, a sort of almost a full set of top dentures. You might just want to look. And I thought to myself, what a classy place we live in. No, I did not pick him up. It, it leads to all sorts of questions, though, didn't it? Like, firstly, whose are they? And secondly, what happens? Do you say, I've lost them somewhere, I just can't think where they fell out? <laughs> What's going on? And I thought, oh. And do you know what? This is, I mean, it's, let's, let's be honest, it's not. It's not Micah. It's not Micah's day. But it's just another thing that you go, oh. And the temptation just to complain. Go. Flooded the place. We live in a place where people lose their teeth and presumably don't notice or they get stolen. <laughs> Maybe that's what the kids were trading in. I don't know. False teeth. All I'm saying is if you've got a set and you're, you're thinking, oh, that, they look like mine. I, I know where they are. When the day gets as bad as it's getting at work or at home in your family, or just when you get so cheesed off with yourself, is it just complaint? Or does it drive you to cry out? And Micah, on the worst of the worst of days, in the middle of this situation where he's outlining, this is, this is as bad as it's going to get, folks. In verse 7, he inserts a verse that shoots into the darkness a different perspective. As for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. God has not finished. God will act. God will hear me. And in a sense, what the prophets, all of the prophets did, they said to the people around them who were wobbling and really sometimes just doing their own thing and losing hope, the prophet said, no, we will be the people who go, we're here as a reminder to you that God has not finished this story yet. God will hear us. God will act. I will wait for God to do what God will do. A few months ago, I was preaching through Mark, and some of you might remember that I said in the midst of one of the sermons, it doesn't matter if you don't particularly, but I suggested that prayer is a conversation with God that brings change. This idea when we pray together, when we pray in situations, what is prayer? Prayer says this situation does not need to be the final word. That's what prayer is. Prayer that steps into family situations, it steps into work situations, it steps into hopeless situations and go, no, 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 this story does not need to end here. Prayer is not shrugging your shoulders. Prayer is not, oh God, just help. Prayer is much firmer than that. Prayer steps in and says, my God has not finished yet. 
And some of us know how it feels when we've finished, when we just say, it's never going to be any different. When we just want to walk away and go, our story's finished. I just don't know how I can cope any longer, and so it's easier for us just to walk away. But the prophetic prayer says, I refuse to believe that this is the end. I watch in hope for the Lord. Biblically, hope is not sort of a sunny Pollyanna optimism. The hopeful Christian is not the one who's going around all the time going, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. Sometimes when you're in a really bad place, you just want to smack those people, don't you? Really hard. It's not, that's not what hope looks like. Hope says the enemies of God will not have the final say. Because God's got a story that he has not finished with. It's not optimism, but it's a determined stance that says God has a plan and a purpose and he will work it out. But can you imagine how much faith you need when the invader is just about to come into your country? And the thing that God has promised you and the thing that God has given you, it looks like it's just going to be taken away from you. And the prophet stands and says, I watch with hope. And more than that, he speaks to the country in verse 14, to the people who were rebellious, to the people who did do their own thing. And he says, shepherd your people with your staff. God, don't give up on them. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, show them your wonders. Do it again, God. Do what you did at the Exodus. God, take a people who are disobedient. Don't give up on them, God. Prayer looks like the weakest thing you can do. In fact, you know, sometimes um, we say to one another, don't we? Well, I can't do anything. The only thing I can do is pray. As though I wish I could do something. Because if I could do something, I could really change this situation. But it's like, well, what can you do? Like, all I can do is pray. I think I've told you this before, but years and years and years ago, I, uh, I used to do school assemblies a lot. And uh, I used to get wheeled out then for school events. Um, and they'd say to me, can you just do a nice little prayer? And, and I'd read somewhere, and I thought it was brilliant. I wanted to say a nice little prayer. We're talking to the God of the universe here, the God who understands how the whole thing came together, with the God who actually rose Jesus from the dead. A little prayer? It's kind of like, we could pray, and you just never know what might happen. And they go, no, we don't want that. We just want a little prayer. <laughs> just to get our Advent service going, if you don't mind. But isn't that how we are sometimes? Is prayer's like the weakest thing. It's the last thing. It's, well, what else can you do? And yet here we are, we sing at the beginning of a service and we'll sing towards the end of a God who steps into history and a God who changes things and a God who hears. This is a God whose world it is. It's his show. It's his, it's his plan. It's his purpose. He's acting and he uses us. He invites us to be part of it. It's not that we've got a plan and we're sort of asking God, can you join in with us? It's God's got a plan. And he's going, I'd love to use you. Will you pray and get a heart for this with me? And so Micah says, these people 
who've left you, God. Please, God, don't leave them. Shepherd them when they're away from you, when they're in exile, when they're far from you, God. Will you shepherd them? And then he finishes with this brilliant, brilliant part of Scripture. Who is? It's like, God, I can, I can say all this. I can lay it all out. I can pour out my heart. I can come out prophetically and just lay it all down with you, God, because of who you are. Because who is, like a, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You don't stay angry forever. You delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and you will show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Who's a God like you? That part, particularly the first part, who's a God like you, comes and it's like a riff on Exodus chapter 34. What's gone on in the Exodus is this, is that Moses has been up in the mountain getting the law from God and he comes down and he, he sees that what they've done in the valley is they've made a golden calf because he's effectively the people on the, in the valley were going, it's all right this God business, but we want something we can see and touch, something that's a bit more secure if you don't mind. And Aaron, who'd been left in charge of them, uh, Aaron had said, okay, well let's get all these gold stuff together and we'll make together a calf and, um, and we'll worship it. And if you go to the British uh, Museum, by the way, you can see these little images that they made in those days. And they said, there's something about that animal that we can actually, I don't know, it's like, like magic. And then Moses comes down the mountain and he goes, what's gone on? He's really cross. In fact, he's so cross, he smashes the tablets, if you remember. And uh, Aaron goes, I don't know. We just got all this gold together. We put it in the fire. And how came a calf? Who knows? It's like, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> And Moses recognizes what's gone on here is these people have said, God, you're all right, but you're not safe enough. You're not powerful enough. Let's, let's make a God of our own image. And, and Moses goes to God and, and he, he starts to intercede for these people. And he says, God, don't give up on them. He says, God, if you don't lead us, then don't, I don't want to go. God, don't give up. And then he says to God, God, I want to see you. I want to see you. And, and do you remember the story God says, well, if you see me, you will just not be able to cope. So I'll go past you, and you will know that I've been there. And I'll hide, so hide yourself in the rock. And as God passes, Moses recognizes who's a God like you who pardons sins and forgives transgressions. And it becomes so much part of their story. That's what God's like. God doesn't give up. And he doesn't give up on your family. And he doesn't give up on your situations. And he doesn't give up on your hopes. And he doesn't give up on your dreams. God continues to work out his plan and his purpose for his world, including your world. That, these verses, by the way, one of the things that they did for the Jews was they... they they, they could see the high point that, that Micah was delivering here. And so on the new year, in the afternoon, Orthodox Jews go where there's water. This is a picture. It's, it's not particularly bright, but you can see. And what you've got are the Jewish guys here. Can you see them? Uh, by the side of the, the water, and they're praying. And what they're praying, what they're reciting, is Micah 7. 
And it's, it's called Tashlik. And what they say is, God has, we can push all our sins into that water and God just forgets them. And it's because, it's because you, uh, verse 19, you will again have compassion as you will tread our sins underfoot. You'll hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And every new year, the Jews go and they say, God, we need that. Will you hurl our sins into the sea? We don't need to gather by water. We gather at the foot of a cross. Where God says, look at my son. That's how my plan for the world is worked out. And on the days when you don't feel that particularly faithful, on the days when you feel like you've let everybody else down, including God, you come to the cross and you hear said over you, I am a God who pardons sin and forgives the sins of his people. So come and allow me to use you. I met this guy this week. His name's Louis. I've known him for quite a while, but I didn't really know his story. Louis is 72. Uh, he's looking incredibly well for 72. Louis was in education for most of his life, and uh, in media and in education. He was a teacher, and then he involved himself in media. But uh, when he was 65, um, he and his wife, Victoria, they were living in a place called Blackheath in London, South London. Blackheath is a really well-to-do area. And uh, by the end of his career, um, Louis and Victoria were able to buy a house. They were able to live in a house that had 13 rooms. It was beautiful. It was an Edwardian villa. It was delightful. It was delightful. Yep, I'm just telling you all that to make you feel jealous and uh, envious. And that's how some people live, folks. Um, <laughs> he belonged to a church where years ago, they bought, uh, the church had bought a house on an estate of a thousand people. And it was the poorest estate in Blackheath. Now, the thing about being poor in a rich area is if you are poor, you're very poor. Do you know what I mean? If you're poor in a rich area, you just feel it more. And this was the poorest estate by a distance. Drug addled police visited quite often. And Louis and Victoria, at the age of 65, said, we'll go and live there. And uh, he was telling me the story about his life for the last seven years. He said, uh, I became the secretary of the local housing authority neighborhood watch thing. He said, so I visit every home once a quarter. He said, so I know everybody. He said, we put on barbecues in the summer on the grass outside. We have an open home uh, every other week where people can just come. He said, my wife's really great with the women, and uh, she's become like a grandma to a lot of the, uh, the young mums who are struggling. And he said, uh, we found the lonely people and we've signposted them to the church. He said, we've talked with the kids and some of the kids have joined the youth groups and they've become Christians. He said, that's my parish. He lives in a maisonette and has done for seven years. He said, I think I'll probably give it another three. 
And when I'm 75, I'll begin to ask God, well, what am I going to do now? And he said, for the last seven years, he said, I've just known that this estate does not have to be as it has been. He said, and we've prayed loads. He said, and it's changed. We don't get the police around half as much. He said, one of the things that changed is that different people moved in. And that's changed it. He said, but this is my place. The church had had this house for years and nobody wanted to live there because who would? You've worked hard all your life. You've made sacrifices. You were lucky. You've got a 13-bed house in Blackheath. You can go on cruises. Why would you? Because one man said, that estate, the story's not finished. God's got a different future for that estate. Ben Okri, a novelist, said this. Our future is greater than our past. Micah finishes his little book, seven short chapters, in a bleak situation, and says, don't complain, cry out. Trust that the promises to Abraham are true in Jesus. So pray, because God hears. Act, because God acts. He does not give up. Face the future with hope. Even hope for those who've gone so far off the rails. Micah knew that Yahweh was the only source of Israel's hope. We sing together, Jesus is the hope of the nations. And as always, you get to the end of a book like Micah and you go, okay, God, either, either that's reality or, and I don't mean to be rude, or the watered-down version that I've made it is reality. Where God just helps me get by. And Micah sees a different future and calls us to walk it with him.